0: <laughs> Welcome to Akam. Acom- Wait. <laughs> Sorry. Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents AchaMedia. AchaMedia does not present Cinema Journal. It's the not other way yet, around. anyway. No, we're still growing here. I'm Christine Becker.
1: And I'm Michael Kakman.
0: And we are back for another summer edition. Summer is in the, are we in the heart of summer yet or is that more? Oh God, it's like, it's, it's like 40
1: degrees oh. and raining out there. So. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's the heart of summer.
0: And we were just in Ireland and somehow it's raining here more than it was in yeah, Ireland. It's beautiful in Ireland. Yeah, we had an amazing time at Consoling Passions, which ties in with a segment we have later in the the podcast. That's right. So got that to look forward to. And Mm -hmm. we've got a lot of great stuff in this podcast. We're going to bring you Jill Simpson, the executive director of SCMS. Bill Kirkpatrick, our good buddy and producer, sat down with her and got some information about her plans for uh, SCMS. And then I talked to Jen Proctor about her in-transition video essay, which responds to an essay in Cinema Journal. And then finally, we've got a little Vox Calari surprise. Just a little at the end. something. Yeah. All right, then let's kick it off with Bill Kirkpatrick talking to Jill Simpson.
2: Hi, I'm talking with Jill Simpson. Jill is the new executive director as of 2014 of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Jill, welcome to ACA
3: Thank you, Bill. Great to be here.
2: We wanted to talk with you about how your first year has gone and to learn a little bit about what you're hoping to accomplish with SCMS. But I wanted to start with a little bit of your background. You came to SCMS from the Oklahoma Film and Music Office, where you were working with industry folks to try to bring media production to Oklahoma. And um, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about your background and maybe some of how you see the differences between working with the industry and working with a scholarly society like SCMS.
3: Well, my background, actually, I studied film in college here at the University of Oklahoma and um, landed my first job right out of college on Rumblefish, which was a film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, which was a great way to start. So, I then moved to Los Angeles with some experience and was able to continue working in the film industry for about almost 20 years, and I worked on mainly studio productions, but also um, a few independent films and TV series, and um, I made the decision back in 2002 to return to Oklahoma for family reasons, and so once I got here, I started volunteering my time to help the state film board, which is the Oklahoma Film and Music Office. It also includes music in its mission. And at that time, the current director of the office was deciding to step down. So I wrote a strategic plan and pitched it and landed that job and uh, continued in that role for about 10 years. While we're tasked with growing infrastructure and industry, uh, we were tasked with that for both film and music. A lot of that hinged on being able to get laws passed in support of both of those industries, which was really a big challenge. I mean, I knew the industry side of things. I knew about film production and, you know, how to make a project. But it really fell solely on me pretty much to create infrastructure to support the growth of that in Oklahoma. And historically, film boards had been really... Um, their, their duties were much more based on tourism aspects rather than economic development. And that all changed when Canada got very aggressive with their incentives and their, their efforts to recruit projects to Canada. So initially, back in 2000, prior to my coming here, a bill was passed called Compete with Canada in Oklahoma – To try to get some of that business from Canada, well, as you know, in the last 12 years, the states all got involved, and now it's become a highly competitive environment amongst the states to recruit the films to their areas, so much so that films are leaving Los Angeles and New York and going to Georgia, Louisiana, and different places based on soft money. So I became a person that managed a lot of soft money in recruiting the films to come in the state. And we were able to grow our industry in Oklahoma about, I believe the the last figure was 500% in my tenure. Um, but it's based very much on how much the state's willing to support. But we were able to get August Osage County, which was based in Oklahoma, and Harvey Weinstein wanted to take it to Georgia. But we were able to land that. We had a Terrence Malick film shot a few years ago here called To the Wonder. We had a Michael Winterbottom film based on a Jim Thompson novel called The Killer Inside Me. So we had these very rich, independent films with A-list directors that I was very proud to be able to land.
2: You know, Somehow, I don't imagine Georgia looking a lot like Oklahoma. I don't know what he was thinking. You
3: know, it doesn't. But what I found is that incentives trump aesthetics in many (laughs) cases. So what I often did was I would woo we the director over on my side because they really wanted the aesthetic as well and once that happened we had a greater ability to make the case
2: so how is it different working with scholars now now you've got a bunch of bunch of academics and and they have very different interests and priorities
3: well people are people and you know what i'm what i looked at when i applied for this job was what are the similarities and what i'm finding is there are many You know, my last job, I was the person hired to support the needs of many different constituents across many different backgrounds. And while SCMS is primarily academics, I mean, people are still who they are. And when I was in Montreal, what I saw was, you know, I tried to use this first conference to to float as much as possible and experience as much of it as I could. So I went to, I didn't get to do as much as I wanted based on my meeting schedule, but I did attend the SIG caucus committee meeting. I attended a workshop, I attended a panel and listened and realized that a lot of the skills that I developed over the last 20 years are the similar to the things that I'll be doing for the organization, which is A, I want there to be transparency with the Home Office and what we're doing so that the membership understands and has the ability to weigh in. Um, I realize it's my duty to hear what the challenges are and try to come up with solutions. What I loved about it was being able to be in the environment with the people that love cinema as much as I do and, and appreciate media and where it's going with all the diversity. And it reignited my passion, and I came back from Montreal just so excited and energized by your group because I think they're amazing.
2: So what do you see as the biggest challenges facing SCMS right now? I remember talking with Bruce Brassel last year, and he was referring to SCMS as this kind of adolescent organization that's sort of in this awkward it's no longer a small society, but it's also not the big monolith that is NCA, uh, and he kind of compared it to this gangly adolescent who hasn't quite grown into its body yet. I was wondering if, you, if that metaphor rings true for you and where you see the, the big issues that are facing SEMS right now.
3: Well, I would probably con- concur with Bruce to a certain degree. The growth has happened so fast. When I looked at some of the the size of the conference from like 2,000 on, I mean, that's a market increase. Our membership has gone from 500, I think, to 3,000, and we had 468 panels this year. The challenge going forward is, you know, the economy has strengthened. So our conference manager, Leslie Lamond, is in an increasingly difficult difficult position negotiating contracts with hotels. That can accommodate the number of panels we need for the price point that we also need to make it affordable to our membership. So the question arises: How do we sustain that? You know, at a certain point, are we going to have to put a cap on? You know, the amount of workshops and panels we can accommodate. What I'm seeing is there's still a request for more. You know, that's what I was hearing in some of the meetings I was in in Montreal. So that is that's a challenge. How are we going to manage this going forward? And how does the organization see itself or, you know, where do we want to be in five years or 10 years? I think compared to a lot of our other organizations or societies of our size, our conference is really big. And that conference program really supports that theory when you see that it's now like a volume, it's, it's a tome <laughs> rather than a than a little booklet. So yes, that is a question. And you know, the board is concerned with trying to keep membership levels, the the fees low and affordable to scholars, but we also have to figure out a way to pay for the things that we're doing. So that's a bit of a challenge. Um, so I think,
2: how do we do that?
3: Uh, I, I'm tasked with looking at a number of things right now. Um, I'm looking at cinema journal to see, you know, are there other ways that we can get it out there? Is it a book that could be sold, you know, for greater income? I'm looking, going through the budget right now, trying to find greater efficiencies, but you know, that's going back to the well and, and doing a lot of things, that uh, are on my to-do list. I'll be really honest with you. You asked me how my first year is going. I'm still in my first year. The first year will not be complete until August 31st. And what I've largely been focused on, as somebody said to me recently, is getting the basement in place or what I like to look at as the foundation. We're in a time of incredible transition right now. Jane Dye, who created this office and has been with the organization for 16 years, is retiring, as you know, on June 30th. So the last three months has been spent largely getting that job posted, having people apply. We just made an offer to somebody today, and Lindsay Pendleton will be joining us June 1st as the new administrative coordinator. Um, Simultaneously, the University of Oklahoma's director of their film media program Uh, We have had an interim director, Joanna Rapp, and she is stepping down in about three weeks and we have a brand new SCMS member taking over that role, Caitlin Benson, a lot. So there's been a lot of housekeeping to take care of before I can get into these bigger, longer range projects. So to be uh, completely honest, there are no clear cut solutions to what we're going to do, but that once I can get through June, I can then focus on some of these things and really dig into the the contract regarding cinema journal and look at the membership and look at work with Leslie Lamond and where we're trying to get to with future conferences. So it's in process.
2: Yeah. I feel like we have breaking news here and too bad. It's not going to come out for another month.
3: Right. Um, What, what happened is I think the board, you know, had been working one of their main strategic goals for um, the organization was to hire an executive director So that was accomplished last fall, but with that came a big list, a big to-do list of things that had been saved and put on that, you know, my job duty. So now what we're trying to do is work through those and break those out in a manageable timeline.
2: Well, since we're talking about that, one of the things that came out in the press release when you were hired was the need to update our administrative structure. Can you tell the membership a little bit about what that actually means? How was it? Structured before, and where are we going towards?
3: Well, I think what it means is that the intention is that I will be taking on some of the responsibilities of the of the board officers. Jane, like I just mentioned, has been here for sixteen years and largely served as the continuity. Once I have some time behind me, that will largely fall to me in the executive director role. So it you know it's tough for board officers when they have full time jobs you know, at their at their respective universities to keep an eye on all of the things that need attention on a regular basis for the society. So we're looking at that as we restructure the board positions. And for example, some of the things that have fallen on the treasurer in the past will now be in the purview of the executive director. And that includes budget oversight, day-to-day management of the finances in running the home office, putting together of materials for board meetings that has been handled by other people I will take on. But I, you know, until this is finalized, I would, I would rather wait until it's a done deal. And that, that again, hopefully will be in the next two months or so, but there's just been a number of things that we're trying to find efficiencies. One of the things that I'm tasked with is looking at our archives and how we want to handle those in the future. Some of them are Stanford university. Some of them are here at the home office but I will just be looking at ways that I can lighten the load of the president-elect, the president, and the outgoing president, and as well as the treasurer, and see if there are things that make more sense for that to be handled in the office. And I'm looking forward to working with Pam Wojcik, who's our incoming president. She and I will go to a shared training together in September. And, um, you know, it'll be my first opportunity really starting from scratch with someone and going through the six-year process with them.
2: So the first purpose of a scholarly society is obviously to foster conversation among among scholars in the field. What else do you think a scholarly society should be attempting to accomplish? I know that a lot of the initiatives that I've seen coming through from the membership – involve more public policy activism mm-hmm. and uh, liaising with the industry and so forth. So what do you think a scholarly society of the size and scope and, and purpose of SCMS could accomplish beyond the obvious first goal of, of conversation?
3: Well, I think we have a great opportunity at SCMS of really promoting our organization as the foremost go-to for lack of a better term for our scholars to be the top in their field as far as knowledge and background in cinema and media studies and appreciation and one of the things that i spent a lot of time doing in montreal was scheduling meetings with with groups that i thought would provide great opportunities for our organization as far as partnerships and organizations that i thought had shared interests and Primarily in that, uh, you know, first and foremost in that group would be the Academy of Arts and Sciences and the Margaret Herrick Library. I think in the past, SCMS enjoyed a strong relationship with the organization. And uh, in recent years, the Academy has taken on a number of projects, including the new museum that I believe will be complete in 2016. But I had what I thought was a really fruitful conversation with the representative from the academy that was at in Montreal and made plans to, to go out and tour the Herrick Library and really talked about the potential of having a conference in Los Angeles in the next three years where they could play a larger role in the conference and potentially host events at the new library. But I think, you know, there's potential of getting our our members out there in a meaningful way. I'd like in the future. I realize that SCMS doesn't have an official speaker series that is under the umbrella of SCMS, but certainly opportunities of getting our people out there in an, in some kind of recognized capacity to either sit on a panel or do conversations with filmmakers. But I that would be a great way to raise awareness of the organization as a whole. When one of the things that I will be looking to to do is raise, increase uh, funding for the organization through some alternative or creative means, you know that that don't necessarily come from the pockets of our membership. Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Um, so, in our last couple minutes, could you just sort of state what do you think? Are the biggest joys or surprises of your time so far at SEMS? And what do you see as the biggest one or two challenges?
3: Well, I would. It's easy to say the biggest joys, and I'm not sure they're surprises. But I, it's such a joy to be back amongst a group of people that I share interests. That's such a such a genuine interest and passion for uh, cinema, along with them. That wasn't the case for many years in my role as film commissioner because I was largely, you know, while I was working with filmmakers, which was a great part of the job, I was largely working with lawmakers and policymakers who often don't see the value in the arts. You know, in, in tough economic times, their interests are making sure that essential duties of the state are being taken care of, and healthcare care and education, which I support, but we were a revenue generator. So it was often tough to make that case, get them to understand that case. So I'm back with people who share my feeling that there's such value in the arts and that a society without them will suffer greatly in the long term. I am happy to be a part of a group that values film preservation and uh, want to try to figure out ways of how our archives within SCMS can be a value to others, which I think the conversation with the Academy is going to be really valuable in that regard. So I'm back with like-minded people, which is great. Um, As far as challenges, I come from an administration background. You know, I was in the film industry, but I... Was largely in the role of production and uh, production management, so I bring those skill sets to the organization, which I see as a value. I'm not another academic, so I look at things differently than they do, and I see that as a strength. But it's also a challenge at times because I've got to be able to paint the picture I see and share it with others when they're looking at it, often in a very different, uh, a different way. But again. A challenge in my mind, is a tool for growth and a stepping stone for the future, and I see that as a very positive.
2: All right, thank you very much. Um, last question, what's your favorite movie?
3: Oh, that's a tough question. I know, it's an impossible I will, one. <laughs> I will not say it's my favorite movie, but the most seminal movie in my life was True Grit, because I would go to the movie theaters, Movie theater, I would say theater singular, because there was one theater in Norman that I loved, and it was the Hollywood Theater, and I would go every weekend and see the matinees over and over again, and I saw everything from Planet of the Apes to John Wayne Westerns, but it was true grit that captured my imagination. I think it was the female protagonist in the form of Maddie Ross, played by Kim Darby, and I really took her to heart and wanted to be her, and I rode horses, so I cut my hair like her the whole bit. But that movie really got to me and got under my skin, and at that moment in 1968, at the age of eight, I said, that's what I want to do in my life. I want to work on movies, and I didn't know what that meant. But I clung to that and made it happen, so for that reason, it was the most important movie to me.
2: What did you think of the remake?
3: I didn't see it. They wanted to bring it to Oklahoma, so we scouted every location imaginable, um, the Cohen Brothers pro- uh, production designer and my team and me, and in the end, they took it to Texas to shoot some of the exteriors, and at that point, I was pretty heartbroken, and so I, <laughs> I didn't really get over that very well, so I never saw the remake, and then I read the reviews and decided not to. <laughs>
2: All right. Well, Jill Simpson, thank you very much for joining us on Acamedia and best wishes for finishing up the first year and many years to come of leading the society.
3: Thank you, Bill.
2: All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care.
1: You know, it's amazing to think about how much SCMS has changed just in our short little half lifetimes.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: You know, the um, it's for my entire SCMS experience. Jane Die has been the the gateway to the organization, and right. It's I congratulate her very warmly on on her retirement. Um, But we'll miss her. We will. We will. And it's kind of amazing that we're now at this point where we have this uh, wonderful new executive director coming in and um, kind of new professional development ideas. And it's really pretty, it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. And especially her coming in with industry experience as well. I I look forward to seeing what she can bring to SCMS and then what we can uh, bring to her in terms of knowledge of what we do here in academia. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It'd be be an interesting ongoing conversation.
0: Definitely. Speaking of ongoing conversations, yeah, there you go. Look at that's that. a segue. Look at that. Well, last episode, we brought you an interview with Austin Fisher about his in transition essay, which was a video essay, which was a response to a Cinema Journal article. We wanted to do a, a second one of these interviews because these video essays are so fascinating. And I was particularly taken with Jennifer Proctor's video essay, which is basically an experimental film and an experimental essay and a scholarly essay all in one. And so I got to talk with her about all of those aspects um, of this project of hers. Here we go. Jennifer Proctor was commissioned to respond to Justin Reims' article in Cinema Journal titled Boundless Ontologies, Michael Snow, Wittgenstein, and the Textual Film. Reems's article focuses on experimental films that traffic in the written word, such as Michael Snow's So Is This, and argues that such experiments problematize rigid conceptions of film's ontology and instead foreground the usefulness of a Wittgensteinian approach to cinema. From this, Jennifer Proctor created a video essay entitled So's Nephew by Reams, Thanks to Michael Snow by Joy Pencroft, which uses the text of a conference paper version of Justin Reams' article in a mode quite similar to what Michael Snow created in So Is This, spooling out Reams' argument literally word by word on the screen. Thank you for joining Ecomedia. Well, thank you for having me. We're really interested to talk to you about the video essay that In Transition commissioned you to produce in response to Justin Reams' Cinema Journal article. Were you given any parameters by In Transition to work with, or was it all up to you?
4: Yeah, it was pretty wide open, um, which was fantastic. There was kind of the suggestion that the video essay could take the form of an adaptation, kind of a direct adaptation of the original essay, but it was only a suggestion. Um, It was sort of framed to me as an opportunity to respond to the essay that was going to be in Cinema Journal. And um, frankly, the idea of adapting the essay wasn't of interest to me at the start. I had some other ideas in mind, um, and it was only later in the process that I decided to do a more direct kind of formal adaptation. So it started wide open, and and I, I very much wanted to be able to hook into the argument that was in the essay, but also bring my own practice um, to bear and my own interest to bear on the piece as well. So um, so those were sort of my parameters. And I had initially thought that I would, because I'm very interested in, in remediation, and that's part of my practice is doing a lot of sort of remake of other people's work. So my initial thought was that I was going to take Michael Snow's "So is This." as it was printed as a script in Scott McDonald's screenwritings book and then turn that back into a film. So it would have been initially Michael Snow's film that was then remediated back into a book and then remediated back into a film. But as I was tearing the pages out of Scott McDonald's book with great apologies to Scott McDonald. I destroyed one of the pages, Um, and so that sent me back to the drawing board. Um, It's sort of like I kept having that scene from History of the World Part 1 where Mel Brooks says Moses comes out with the 15 commandments on these tablets, and he walks out and drops one of them, and it shatters, and he says, you know, the 15, oh! the 10, the 10 commandments. And so I, you know, one of my tablets shattered and I had to sort of figure out, well, what, what is my new project going to be? So, um, so that's kind of where, where this all started.
0: And I love that the title could then have a subtitle with apologies to Scott McDonald could be added (laughs) in there as well. Well, I find that really fascinating, especially because I've looked at three of these essays now and each does really have a different approach. So one I saw was kind of a more traditional response to a point in an essay. Another one was kind of an aesthetic re-envisioning of some of the films an essay talked about. And then there's yours, which I found just a fascinating kind of ontological exploration of things in the essay and then issues raised then by doing a video essay version of it, What you've essentially done is then create kind of an experimental video essay version of the original essay, plus then something that riffs on the Michael Snow film. And in the short text uh, that accompanies the video essay, because on In Transition there are, there's some explanatory sidebar text that uh, allows the um, the author to explain some of the, uh, what's behind the construction of the film. Um, You write that you hope this video essay prompts questions like, what does it mean to write for a textual film, um, as opposed to other venues? What is the textual film's status as a literary medium? So could you explain that once you dropped the the extra five commandments and got to your (laughs) your final focus, how you use the video essay form to raise those questions questions and what kind of answers you felt like you came to through that process?
4: Yeah, and and I've been thinking about this. I don't think that I've come to the answers yet. I think the process of making this piece raised those questions and now I'm kind of thinking through them. Um, But I don't think it's included in in Justin's essay, but Michael Snow had a handwritten script for So Is This that you can see actually in Scott McDonald's book, um, but it's reprinted in a couple other places as well. Um, and so it 's a handwritten script of "So is this with uh, like an annotation of how long each word should be on the screen. so it's literally kind of a composition, like a musical composition, which is a much different way of thinking about writing than writing you know a traditional essay um, or writing a poem or writing for the web or you know all these different um, other venues that you can write for. And so that was kind of the challenge that came up for me as I was making or sort of adapting Justin's piece to the screen is, will this work, you know, as something on screen? Is this going to be cinematically compelling? And I had initially started with his actual cinema journal essay, which is, you know, a bit um, headier and wordier and more complex, and it felt extremely like a laborious thing to read on screen. And so I'm, I'm grateful that he gave me his conference version of it, which is much more conversational. So so it kind of raised these questions, then, of if I were going to translate this sort of dense academic essay to the screen, I don't think it would have been an enjoyable <laughs> experience to watch. And so it kind of raises this question of, if you're then writing for the screen, what do you need to take into consideration for the audience? How do you create emphasis on a word? Is it through the typography? Is it through making the word bigger or smaller or positioning it differently on the screen? Is it about color? Uh, is it about, you know, duration? Does you just sit there and you just let it sit for a while as a way of emphasizing? How do you control the rhythm of the sentence as a way of emphasizing the ideas? So it, it raised those kinds of questions, which then also made me start thinking about even just intro titles or prologues to film, you know, the great sort of scrolling Star Wars, you know, introduction, how do you write for that and what is unique about thinking about how you write for textual elements on screen? Um, and so I don't have any answers, but I, I thought those were really interesting questions that I hadn't thought about before.
0: Yeah, and I, I did enjoy the experience. I did watch the whole thing, Fantastic. all 28 <laughs> minutes, although I confess, I, I did take a Twitter break about halfway through and check, <laughs> check Twitter, but I, I did watch the whole thing. Well, in fact, there's one fascinating aspect of my experience, and it relates to the title of your video essay, which is So's Nephew by Reams, Thanks to Michael Snow by Jory Pencroft, which is a takeoff of a title of a Michael Snow film. And I first went to your video where it was posted and I hadn't read your sidebar text or anything like that. And I saw that latter part by Jory Pencroft and I'm like, oh, who is that? I actually Googled Mm -hmm. Jory Pencroft. I thought this was a person. And of course I didn't find any hits and I couldn't make sense of that. I didn't know what that meant. Then I started watching the film and of course, you know, your, your gaze wanders a little bit and my eyes went back down to that. And then it instantly hit me and maybe I won't spoil it. I'll let other people figure out what that is, but I think there was something about because I was watching the film, thinking about the construction of words and letters. And then when I looked down to that, I was like, oh, of course, how did I not see that first? And so it was once my mind was in that kind of mode of thinking through what what words are about, it unlocked that. And I thought that was a really fascinating experience and that it seems to kind of attest to something you were trying to go for to make us think about the literary in filmic terms.
4: Yeah, absolutely, and something that I think Michael Snow's original piece is very much about. I think you're you do have to get trained. There's a few you know a few minutes that it uh, takes for you to get trained into the experience that you're watching, and to get into the rhythm of it, and to get into the patience <laughs> of it, um, which which is part of the you know the challenge. And I think this this idea of duration becomes so interesting in watching his original piece. And again, it's this huge challenge once it's on the web because part of his original piece is about his control over the audience and the audience sort of having to give up to his control, which I love and I think is sort of funny. And I think he thinks it's funny. Um, and so then what happens when when you turn that control back over to an audience member? What What's sort of lost in that? Um, so there's a part of me that wants to be able to show this piece you know, to a, a captured audience and not let them leave and watch it all the way through. But of course, that's not how the web works. So yeah. I'm giving up that
0: control. <laughs> well, I also thought that's fascinating to think in terms of how the consumption of scholarship works as well, because this theme of control that comes up in, uh, in both the original essay and then your own uh, piece about how when we're reading, we're in control of the pace. In a traditional film setting, we are beholden to the film's pace. But once you put something like that on the web, again, I could go read Twitter for 10 minutes, I could pause it. And I also thought that was another interesting reflection back on the fact that you used a conference paper version, because that's also a different kind of control as we're consuming that, where we're beholden to their you know their chosen rate and so forth. So I thought this was another thing your your essay allows us to reflect on. And I wanted to move into a little bit also the idea of how this project makes us rethink notions of scholarship. So for instance, the kind of riffing on that previous quote from your text sidebar. So to me, the the video essay you made also prompts questions like, what does it mean to use moving images as scholarship? what is a video essay status as a scholarly medium? And you write in your sidebar that this is something you wanted to consider with the video essay about how this is a quote uh, to call out the failures, especially in cinema studies, to adequately capture cinematic experiences in words. Um, and the video essay you, you made seeks instead to more directly provoke the original visual sensation. And I found this a really compelling aspect, and especially from that in-transition goal, which is to to bring new modes of scholarship out into media studies. So I presume that was something you were at least thinking of, and, and I'm curious then your reaction to what you maybe accomplished in terms of thinking through the ontology of media studies scholarship that maybe you couldn't have accomplished in a, a print form response.
4: Yeah, so a lot of um, kind of interesting ideas came up as I was making this about these very things, and it's interesting that this is a piece about Michael Snow because Wavelength has sort of notoriously been misdescribed in cinema studies literature. Um, that, that almost every time it's mentioned, somebody has to indicate that this is a film that's been misdescribed, um, and that's partly because you know fil- uh, film scholars probably only got to see it once. You know, so um, it couldn't become this sort of intense object of study. So, to some extent, obviously, a video essay allows you to present the clip that's that's typically described in words for the audience member to consider directly so that it's not going through this translation through you know the the writer or the film scholar and so that's part of what i was trying to do in this essay is instead of using the words from the original video essay to actually drop in the clip that was being described so if a roto relief from anemic cinema is being described what is a roto relief you know how can you actually visually conceive of that just through a description. And instead, if we see it, then it, it snaps into focus, it pops. And so and then that becomes kind of this, it almost functions like a rebus, right, where we have the text from the video essay and then we see the clip and we have to sort of connect, well, what would the words have been that would have described this clip? Um, how does that fit into this notion of text if all of a sudden we see a graphic image So that's part of what I was thinking about. And then also in a traditional essay, the quotes that are integrated are integrated pretty seamlessly, right? So it all feels like it's one voice that's being presented to us. And graphically, that's how it's presented. And you might have a block quote that's sort of set off from the rest of the page. But essentially the typography, the layout, everything is the same. So it feels like a singular voice, And so what I was trying to do in this piece is, and again playing on this idea of textuality, is to grab the quotes from the various sources that were being cited in their original graphical form from their original publication. So that those are set off more sort of discreetly or deliberately as a different voice that's adding to the, the overall message or meaning that's being presented in the piece. And that becomes kind of a graphical form. It becomes something that's sort of more cinematic, but then is also sort of challenging the viewer in terms of duration. <laughs> um, are you going to sit there and read this entire quote that's being presented on screen? So those were a couple of things I was thinking about that um, a video essay can do that we, but and in some ways that even a print essay could do, but don't so uh so those were some of the things yeah, that I was thinking about with this, but then also became a challenge of in a textual film, you know it became a little bit of like a moral question in a textual film, what does it mean to then show imagery, and is that sort of breaking down the form? Is that sort of betraying the form in some way to what it, so what are the limits of how much imagery abstract imagery can I include, and still call this a textual film <laughs> you know
0: great ontological questions and It also made me think about the notion of us consuming scholarship as well. Obviously, if we're reading a print essay, we can just as easily put it down and that kind of stuff. But in terms of reading on the screen, again, the notion of pausing or opening up another tab or something like that. And so this was another thing that made me think about that notion of not just producing a scholarship, because I think a lot of, you know, discussion about video essays focuses a lot on the production and how this is a new way of producing scholarship, and it allows us to use images in order to critique images. But I'm also interested in that notion of how it changes how we consume scholarship as well. Um, do you have any thoughts about that, about, and, and maybe even just simply what your expectations are for how people might consume your, your video essay?
4: Well, I'm generally just very excited about the sort of rise of video essay as a form of scholarship in general, primarily because it uses the form to discuss the form, right? I mean, it's giving us access to the object of study. Um, And this has been a tremendous frustration in terms of studying avant-garde in particular. Um, And I, I find it very frustrating for students that so much of their understanding of the avant-garde is about what they've read about it, not what they've gotten to see. And so this is sort of carving out a new space where maybe we can do both of those at the same time, right? Sort of provide um, access to the object of study as well as discuss it. So I think that partly that is something that I'm really excited about, but I have to say that in translating this essay and then watching it back as text, actually made it, like, I find it really compelling, Um, you know, partly because these aren't my own words, right? I'm watching somebody else's words have now been rendered in these cinematic terms, and I find that it actually goes by pretty quickly, (laughs) and and maybe um, that's just because it's my own work. But I'm actually really compelled by watching text on screen and the way that introducing a rhythm to it enables me to consume the concepts, sort of sit with the concepts in a way that doesn't always, that I don't find myself connecting with on the page in the same way. So this particular kind of textual film as a form of of scholarship, like literally as a form of scholarship, I'm pretty excited by. I don't necessarily see a huge audience for it, but but I really enjoyed sort of sitting with these words and allowing them to um, unfold in front of me in a way that made that sort of forced me to spend time with them in a way that reading doesn't always work for me, especially since I, you know, I tend to skim a lot and sort of look for keywords and things like this. Um, this really, giving again, giving up control to the author is something that enabled me to develop a deeper understanding of their argument. And that was something really exciting to me.
0: Yeah, and I had a similar experience in terms of, it's of course a very minimalist experience, which means even a slight change really stands out. And yeah. that was was something that really struck me. And I and I really what you said in terms of introducing students to this and having them experience the avant-garde. Because this is I reflected back on my grad school experience with the avant-garde, because I don't study the avant-garde and I don't regularly watch it. Um, but I took a couple of classes in grad school and they were among my favorite classes because it's just it puts you in a different experience. Similar to what Justin's article is about, it makes you think about the ontology of film. What is what is cinema, basically? And I find that always a really fun experience. And so your video has to kind of reawaken some of that fun in me of the kind of stuff I don't usually do. In my regular scholarship and teachings, and that's great. And I'm
4: glad that there was an element of fun to this. <laughs> I do think, like, um, there are injections of humor. I think um, both in, you know, Michael Snow, but hopefully in this essay as well, and and in Justin's original essay. Right. So it should be fun yeah. um, as well. And, and I think it's, you know, it's significant that it's dealing with the avant-garde. I mean, the avant-garde in general, I think my experience of studying it as a student and then finally getting to see the films that were mentioned and described and studied in, in so many essays and books, so many of them were misdescribed or not as what I, I expected them to be. Um, and so, again, like shifting the focus of scholarly production to a video essay get around some of those, those sort of, you know, historical problems in terms of, uh, describing films.
0: Right. We should qualify what academics think is fun is perhaps a little different than what (laughs) what normal people think is fun. But, but for me, I found it fun. Um, has, has Justin seen it yet? Or do you have any anticipation about what he might think about it if he hasn't seen it yet? He
4: has seen it. Um, yeah, and I've, I've been in touch with him a little bit and I'm, I'm completely grateful and relieved that he, um, he said that he adored it. Uh, Oh wow! (laughs) And and laughed, uh, you know, through it. So um, I'm I'm totally grateful for that. And we've had some great discussions following it um, about about this being a kind of collaboration. You know, a collaboration in which we didn't really talk to one another, but this is very much um, there's a shared authorship that's happened here. So yeah, so we've had some good discussions, and I'm I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to make his essay in particular.
0: That's great. So we will post a link on our website to your uh, video essay on In Transition. And uh, I'll throw in, this also gives you an opportunity to read the entirety of Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, those of you out there, you get a chance to do that, yeah, too. Yeah,
4: absolutely. I'm not sure too many filmmakers can say that they've made a film that contains the entire text of Paradise Lost. But I've accomplished that. If I've accomplished anything, I've accomplished that.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for talking to us about your video
4: essay. Thank you so much, Chris.
0: Well, usually we finish up the podcast by talking about what you and I are watching, Michael, but we have a special surprise for you because we were at the Consoling Passions Conference in Dublin just about a week ago, and we decided to talk to attendees about what they were watching or what they would recommend people watch with their summer viewing time.
1: Yeah, we got some good suggestions, some kind of wacky ones, some Mm. all interesting ones, so let's just give this a listen.
0: All right. It's Melanie Williams from the University of East Anglia. Another thing that I found really interesting, a BBC TV drama uh, written by Danny Brocklehurst called um, Everyday Lies, and it's set in a, a kind of small business, and each episode focuses on a kind of lie that underpins that particular character's life that then gets exposed. So it's all about how you don't really know what's going on with your colleagues until there's some moment of revelation and everything comes crashing down.
5: Charlotte Howell, UT Austin. My recommendation is a limited series, dramatic series entering about the halfway point right now. Some strong underdogs showed up in the first half, but now, you know, the main characters are taking to the fore and it's the Women's World Cup. Um, And as far as more standard TV fare, I highly recommend Unreal. I was able to watch the first four episodes streaming before I left the country and it is harsh but great behind the scenes drama about a Bachelor type show on Lifetime. This is M um, Woods from University of Reading. Because it's
6: summer, we need to have some darkness. So I would recommend, if people
4: haven't already checked out, um, Happy Valley by Sally Wainwright, who did Last Tango in Halifax. And this was kind of like her kind of red cart, red cart, launch from the BBC, as a result of making them Last Tango
7: in Halifax. And then she kind of got to make an incredibly dark and cracker-esque female-focused police drama that's all about kind of motherhood and female breakdowns and traumas. And it's got an amazing performance
4: by Sarah Lancashire in the lead. And episode four is one of the most astonishing
7: pieces of television I've seen in the past couple of years.
6: My name is Alexandra Sastra. I, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania. I just finished watching a program called the Bletchley Circle, which I found to be kind of an interesting period piece about women that were working as decoders during World War II. They they were part of this you know, secret government organization decoding german messages and all very brilliant women but that then have to negotiate coming back into a domestic sphere post war and they've lost touch with each other and are each in different places in their lives but um somehow reconnect around a recent series of murders that have happened in the city and and part of what's interesting what was interesting to me was that while they are trying to solve the crime which ends up being somewhat secondary to the bigger dynamic in the plot which is trying to figure out how they can basically live in a world that whose boundaries are kind of constricting again around their gender and expectations but basically having to hide not only the kind of work that they did because it was classified work but also having to hide their really their skills and capacities or negotiate using their skills and capacities but in a sort of occlusive ways because they're not taken seriously by institutions like the police or the coroner and such and there's just they have to negotiate the constant disconnect between how they're perceived and their their assets and what they can contribute and I found that really moving and contemporary still even though it is a period piece.
7: Hi, uh, this is Amar Jean Christian. I'm an assistant professor of communication at Northwestern University. For some reviewing, I would recommend two web series, one comedy and one dramedy about black women. Uh, The first one I'd recommend is Aki and Saltfish, which I just presented on here at Consoling Passions. It's by Cecile Ameki. She's a British independent filmmaker, and she has done this web series about two friends, Olivia and Rachel, who are exploring a gentrifying London. They're kind of these really cool, hip, underemployed women, and they go around the city doing various misadventures. It's beautifully shot. It's super hip. It's got a really relaxed style, but it's also hilarious. It's just kind of this gem I never thought I would ever see. And the other series is a little bit uh, self-promotional. It's called You're So Talented, and it's a Chicago-based web series that I'm releasing as part of my new research project. It's about a young Chicago artist and theater actor named B. Freeman. And she's kind of just exploring the city and also exploring um, her own romantic and artistic struggles. She's trying to find herself as an artist and a young woman. The writer is also the star. Her name is Sam Bailey. And she's just beautiful and charming and intelligent. She's growing out her afro for season two. Um, so check it out. I think it's probably the most fully realized web series I've ever seen in its first season.
0: This is Bridget Connor from King's College London. My recommendation is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It is a current series on the BBC, so I hope it's going to be maybe on BBC America. It is an incredible adaptation of the book that you may have heard of. It involves old, ancient British magic from the roots of the earth. And it's for people who love magic and fantasy, but don't love Game of Thrones. <laughs>
5: Julie Wilson, Allegheny College, Assistant Professor of Communication Arts. Um, And I strongly urge folks to check out Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. It's an Australian murder mystery with Essie Davis. And it's, I don't know, some people say she's like a feminist James Bond. I don't really buy that. uh, But it's just super fun and Feminist fantasy awesomeness, so it's on Netflix in the U.S. My name's Kirsten Pike. Uh, I teach at Northwestern University in Qatar, and uh, I'm looking forward to watching 1970s TV shows this summer uh, for research but also for fun. The first one that I can't wait to get back to is the third season of Heart to Heart because I love Jennifer and Jonathan Hart. I'm also planning to watch Aid Is Enough, Family and Fantasy Island. So those are my big 70s choices. And then the one that I started recently that's contemporary is Scott and Bailey, which is sort of a, a new sort of cop show. So those are my recommendations. Sophia Bow at University of Warwick. I would recommend Oliver Kittridge, the HBO series with uh Francis McDormand.
3: Great, unsympathetic female main character, who is lovely because she's so hopeful. <laughs> For the UK people, they could watch the Swedish quality show uh, Scott which is on ITV Encore. It's a sort of weird mix between Scandinavian and some sort of eco drama and like a sort of folklore thing.
5: This is Miranda Banks from Emerson College, also known as the winner of the Green Hornet car. The car is doing well, driving around, and uh, really looking good. Uh, as I'm driving in it this summer, um, in the back seat, you can watch uh, episodes of Foyle's War, which are really fun um, if you're into British mystery shows. It's smart, fantastically written, interesting characters, and uh, great. British history as well. Hi, I'm Amanda Ann Klein, and I'm at East Carolina University, and my summer television recommendation is
6: America's Got Talent. It's sort of like the gong show in a lot of ways. Um, there's a lot of crazy acts, so it's a variety show, so there's dancing, singing, comedy. Uh, there's a man who eats Things and then vomits them back up. Uh, there's a man who falls on sharp objects for your amusement, and I find this incredibly entertaining. And if you have children, it's actually a pretty great family show, despite the vomiting. So I think a lot of people don't watch it. So I, uh, it, at least in media
5: studies, so I would I would highly recommend it. Uh, my name is Maria Promajori,
0: and um, my observation is just that it's difficult to give recommendations when people are watching television programs and films and all sorts of venues at different
3: times and places and different platforms so I am just now watching the third season of Orange is the New Black which I know everybody else in the world binge watched the day it came out June 12th or something like that so that would be what I would encourage people to see.
5: Um, Eleanor O'Leary and um, it's the year that Back to the Future went to the future Back to the Future 2 they came to October 2015 So possibly in the summer, revisiting Back to the Future 2 is a good thing to do. I have another suggestion, and that's
3: Anything by Amy Schumer. Inside Amy Schumer is her program, but she's got things all over the place, and she's magnificent.
5: Um, I'm Deirdre Quinn, I'd recommend, I'm watching it at the moment, Home Fires. It's, I don't know if it's BBC or Channel 4, but it's about women um, working in Britain during World War II, so it's really interesting, the relationships. And... No, I'm watching The Wire again, so I don't think okay. I can recommend that to anybody, everyone's seen it. Or... So the first time... Cold Dark. it's kind of set just after the American Civil War, but relocated back in Britain, if you know what I mean, but within the context of that kind of era. Um, and it's, you know, classic period drama with all of the kind of... um, I think one of the main commentaries on it was the lead male's ability to take (laughs) off his shirt and walk around with the the low pants and kind of wavy hair. So I think that was one of the highlights of the show, basically. (laughs) If I was going to recommend it, that's what most turned up on social media was pictures of him uh, without his top on.
4: My recommendation is Fringe. It's a kind of niche uh, sci-fi thriller uh, show with uh, Anna Torov and Joshua Jackson. It was made by J.J. Abrams, and it was, it's my top favorite show, and I would highly recommend it to anyone and
6: everyone. All right. It's just brilliant. Complex, layered, huge, huge continuity, and it's just, it blows your mind. All right, yeah. and yeah. you are an Indian. Luke. A- Excellent.
1: Anybody else? Any Irish or UK
6: stuff? Um, there's a good UK show. It's back. It's the third series is on in June. It's called My Mad Fat Diary. It's, it's brilliant. It's set in the 90s, and it, it's just so fantastic. It's so funny. She's like... You know, the unruly woman, she's fat, she's funny, she's it's just fantastic.
1: My co-host Chris Becker is the hugest fan of that show. And the
6: music is so good in it as well. It's just uh oh, it's brilliant. And you are? <laughs> My name's <is> Laura. <laughs> I'm eating a cornetto, so <laughs> All right.
4: we're
7: in the middle of writing dissertations, so we're not yeah. supposed
6: to be watching. Yeah, anything our are
7: <laughs> epidemia. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually started watching
6: between. It's What's between
1: between. It's a Netflix original they're only releasing one every week or something but it's about um, this small area in America where everyone over 22 dies from this mad, mysterious disease. And it's like how the kids, well, people younger than 21, are trying to survive, trying to organize their community and take care of each other, which they don't really do very well. But yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, They've just introduced um, a Mennonite aspect to it as well. So I'm really excited to see where that goes.
6: Excellent.
1: And you are? I'm Ro. (laughs) I highly recommend watching TV while you're working on a dissertation.
0: (laughs) There's
1: nothing wrong with doing
7: that at all. Can we quote you on
1: this? Yes. yes. Okay, Michael um. (laughs) Caffey. All right, lots of good stuff. I am totally... I I now have a, a... a justification for watching Back to the Future 2.
0: That's right. We're very helpful here, and plus, I'll I'll add in a plug again. My Mad Fat Diary, so good, so good. Um, the other thing I really liked about that segment was the accents, and this is the you know the fun of an international conference. You get it a is. lot of people, a lot of accents, a lot of shows you don't hear about mm-hmm. here in the U.S. So, so a good range there.
1: You know, and Consulting Passions is such an important conference. It's been a part of my conference world from you know from the from the very get go. And some of the best papers and uh, some of the best conference experiences and some of the best community and it's really wonderful, wonderful resource.
0: Yeah, especially that community aspect. There's a vibe at Consoling Passions that I don't feel anywhere else. And even at at conferences that are geared more toward conversation, like flow, there's just something at Consoling Passions, just such an open giving. So I highly recommend, especially grad students, apply to Consoling Passions because it's a perfect way to feel comfortable presenting your work, to network with people. It's just such an open, fun, giving environment. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So speaking of consoling passions, yes. I don't want to, you know, carts and horses and all that, yeah. but... Um,
0: we saw many carts and horses in Ireland. We did,
1: so. we did, we did. That's, that's, that's but true. But they
0: were never, the cart was never before the horse, no, and, was and,
1: it? And, and, you know, I don't want to run the risk of, of inverting that relationship, but um, it's a, there's a movement afoot to bring consoling passions back to the U.S. to make it a little closer to home mm-hmm. for uh, American scholars next year. The possibility it may come closer to, to, uh, Northern Indiana. But
0: we want to keep it Irish. Well, so yeah. That was like the best part of the last one. Yeah, so.
1: absolutely. Absolutely. So when we, when we know more, we will share more.
0: Stay tuned. And stay tuned for the next Stack and Media, which should be along next month. there will be
1: another good one coming up.
0: All right. So thank you to Jill Simpson, Jennifer Proctor, and all the participants at the Consoling Passions Conference who uh, who submitted ideas for our Vox Scalari segment.
1: Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the DERF Fund at Denison University.
0: We would like to thank our co-producers, Bill Kirkpatrick and Todd Thompson.
1: Our work would be absolutely impossible without them, and we're grateful for all of their help and hard work. Happy summer. Put on a raincoat. <laughs>